Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast. With service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Thanks so much for being part of the Hazard Ground community. Wanted to remind you guys, before we get off with this week's episode, a couple things we need to do. Get you guys on iTunes. Leave us a rating and a review. Also, check out all the social media sites. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Keep up with the show. Keep up with what we have going on. Want to remind you guys about our Amazon promotion. This is a big deal for us, and it's helping out veterans everywhere, and here's what you do. Go to our website, hazardground.com, and click on the Amazon banner right in the middle of the homepage. Do all of your normal Amazon shopping, whether it's business, personal, fun, whatever it may be. If you do that, a portion of what you spend will be given back to us here at the Hazard Ground, and we take that and donate that to some of the amazing veterans charities that you've heard here on the Hazard Ground. In fact, do Due to our Amazon promotion, we've been able to give back to our first veterans organization. So we're so proud of that and we're so thankful that you guys have helped us do that each and every week by going to hazardground.com, clicking on that Amazon banner. Also on hazardground.com, click on the sponsors tab, go through all of our sponsors, support them because they support us. And by supporting us, you're supporting some great veterans charities and veterans organizations all across America. Again, on iTunes, just a quick rating and a review doesn't have to be much. Certainly helps us out and grows the popularity of the show. Now on to this week's episode. Joining us this week is a retired specialist in the United States Army who was wounded in Iraq in 2005. Uh, she competed in the Miss Veteran America in 2013, and she's also working with an organization called Final Salute, Inc. It is Marissa Strock here on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Marissa, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. So uh, incredible you got to compete in Miss Veteran America. That's something I learned that I did not know actually existed. So I'm curious to hear about all that uh, and how you got to where you're doing now with Final Salute, Inc. But let's go back to the beginning, how and when and why you signed up for the Army. So I signed up for the Army in about 2000, I'm sorry, in November of 2004. I graduated high school in 2003, did about a year of school in studied mixology and figuring out what went well with vodka and tequila more than I studied um, my classes. So I needed some motivation and discipline in my life. And I sought that with the military police corps in the army. <laughs> Did you know that you wanted to be an MP going in? What was it about that that attracted you? Um, I've kind of always been one of like, the guys mm -hmm. so i've always been a tomboy i used to hang out with all my brother well with my brothers and their friends and um, so i mean i was girly girl every like occasionally with my female friends but nine times out of ten i was doing boy things and so when it came down to picking a job and he gave me a list and i basically looked at my my recruiter and I said, which is the one that's going to get me close, closest to the action, which one's going to get me doing the most fun stuff. Cause I've always been a thrill seeker. And so he kind of narrowed it down and said this one, this one, or this one. And I, I narrowed it down to basically EOD or military police. And I joke about it and say, you know, 
I decided military police because if it was going to come down to it and I was going to get blown up, it wasn't going to be because I cut the red wire instead of the blue wire. Um, <laughs> it's kind of, I mean, it's funny now that you say it that way. Obviously. Yeah. You know. <laughs> well, it was a little bit of, um, what is that? The foreshadowing maybe. Right. I don't know. So what did your family say? I mean, obviously this is, you know, the both wars had already kicked off. Were there any objections? Yeah, I don't think anybody, I think everybody knew by that point that telling me no was the fastest way to get me to do something. <laughs> so um, I'm, I'm a Taurus. I'm 100% the most probably stubborn human being anybody in my life knows. Um, once I've set my sights on something, I'm going to do it. <laughs> it doesn't really matter what other people think. I think my mom didn't really want me to do it, but knew that it was going to be the best thing for me at the time. I just wasn't, I wasn't very focused on anything but partying with my friends. And I think that she was worried um, the difference between, you know, the high school cheerleader and uh, the decent student and the all around good girl to, partying and drinking with my friends and going out and doing stupid things and getting in trouble probably scared her a little. So, sure. so I, I, when you make this decision and you're talking to your recruiter, I mean, do you realize how close you are to getting to combat? I mean, obviously, you know, I, I guess recruiters kind of tell you a bunch of different things, but being with the MPs and everything, you had to know that as soon as you were done training, you were probably going somewhere, right? You know, I probably should have. Um, but I think, you know, I was 19 when I did it and 18, 19 year old kids were all kind of dumb. Um, so I don't really think that I, I don't know if it was that I'm invincible. It's never going to happen to me attitude, or if it was just, I was focused on getting myself to a better position or, if I was just all around ignorant to what was actually going on in the world at the time, which I don't really, I definitely don't think it was that my, my whole family, like my, my whole father's side of the family, my mom was in the military my mom's father was in the military. My dad's father was in the military. Both a couple of my uncles were in the military. My older brother was a Marine. Um, and anybody who wasn't in the military was some kind of public service police officer, firefighter, EMT. So I don't think I was ignorant to what was actually happening. I think I just didn't, I don't think I really thought it could happen to me. Right. What did your brother say? He was already a Marine. I mean, at this point in time, he probably likely had already deployed, no? No. Uh, oh, really? He joined 2001. He's my half-brother. Okay. So, like, we were in contact, but we weren't extremely close. Sure. Okay. Um, that makes sense. He joined as a refrigeration something specialist or, and I don't think he deployed. I think he ended up hurting his back um, before he could go anywhere. And then coming home like shortly after 2000, um, shortly after nine 11. Gotcha. So, okay. 
So you head off to basic training. Um, do you have any idea what you're getting yourself into? Is this like nope. overwhelming? No, I had no idea. Um, and my, my, my recruiter was awesome. He prepared me, um, as much as he could have, but I think the way that he did it, um, he kind of left me in the dark a little bit, but I think if he hadn't, I think I would have gotten scared and I think I would have gotten not scared. I think I would have gotten overwhelmed and been worried that I couldn't handle it. So I would have backed out of it before I left. Were you physically okay. fit like going into this? Did you realize how much that would be a challenge or was it not a challenge? I have never, ever, ever, ever in my life ever been able to do push-ups. I, you could hold a gun <laughs> to my head and I push-ups are the bane of my existence. Um, I don't know if you've seen pictures, but I like, not that there's photos of my chest on the internet, but, um, I'm, I'm top heavy. Top heavy. Yeah. That's, I think that's the PC way of saying it. Sure. Um, and so if I went down and my boobs touched at all, I went down too far. If I went down and my boobs didn't touch, I wasn't going down far enough. Oh, wow. by, By the time I could get three, you know, I got really sick of hearing, you know, four, Four, four. four. <laughs> <laughs> By the time I got enough "quote unquote" real push-ups, um, I had probably done more friggin' push-ups than half the girls that were getting hundreds in their push-up on on the PT test. So it is what it is. Um, but I ended up, I, I left Iraq with a 16 minute two mile run in skateboard sneakers in hundred and something degree weather. And a girl, good job. Um, so where I didn't shine in some areas, I more than outshined in other areas and pushups really weren't my thing, but I rocked my 50 cal to my truck on a daily basis with all of my gear by myself in one trip. So <laughs> That's awesome. I mean, it's 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 great to hear, um, you know, that how you overcome adversity and things of that nature. Um, certainly, everybody who listens can can relate to that. So, uh, yeah. is there any point during basic training where you're like, "I made a bad decision. Why did I do this?" Um, yes, but it wasn't because I was worried about not being able to finish or worried about what was going to happen um, once I actually got into the military. I got a letter from a friend of mine back home and he was struggling with some things and dealing with some addiction stuff. And I had had enough. I was done. I wanted to go home. I wanted to fix things and be there for my friends and my family. And I took the letter and I walked downstairs with my battle buddy and I walked into the office and I talked to my drill sergeant and said, I'm done. I'm going home. (laughs) How did that go over? Um, it actually, I didn't, he didn't eat my soul. I was Hmm. pretty sure as soon as I said it, that that's what was going to happen. (laughs) Um, and he basically looked at me and said, Strzok, you're doing this for a reason and you're where you're supposed to be and you're doing, more for him here than you ever could at home. And you need to finish this as much for yourself as you do for him. 
Did that resonate with you at the time? Um, I don't necessarily think that I believed him, but I think I recognized the fact that there wasn't an option. It was either finish what I was doing or I'm not sure if I can swear or not, but go for it. Um, okay. I could either finish what I was doing or I could shit bag my way out of it. And I chose to finish what I started because, you know, duty, honor, all that other stuff. And um, I didn't want to let myself down. I didn't want to let my family down. And I think a part of me recognized that me finishing this was like virtue signaling kind of for him that like if I can get through this, that he can get through what he's going through. Mm-hmm. Um, we're still friends and he's clean. So whether I had, you know, my service motivated him or he figured it out another way, I didn't screw up my life <laughs> to help him fix his and he still was able to fix his. So. That's good. That's inspiring. It's great to hear. Yeah. Let me ask you, um, you know, you said you're always one of the boys and, you know, just the nature of the military. And, you know, for those listening, um, you know, we try as often as we can on the hazard ground to get as many females as possible. But just given the demographics, you know, the military is only 13 percent female. So it's really hard to find them. Did you ever feel like as a female you were out of place at any time? All the time. Really? Um, well, OK, so I, I feel like I answered that a little too fast. Yes and no. Um, I knew going into it, I went into the military with the mindset of I'm a woman and I'm going into an MOS where I'm going to be like once I, so I got into basic training and within the first three weeks of basic training, our drill sergeant looked at us and um, he point blank said, look to your left and look to your right in a year from now, there's a good chance that one of those two people won't be alive and won't be, or won't be in the military because they deployed and they were injured or they died. Wow. That's a very somber, somber thought. It, it, but it was the truth because like I literally, I, I deployed 42 days out of training. Wow. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, basic training is like nine weeks. Uh, basic training for us was 12 weeks and then I had 26 weeks in total, I think. Right. After so AIT? I got, cause we did OSIT training. Okay. So I got to Port Lewis on, I left on the 4th of November, 2004. Yay. Election day. <laughs> and then I graduated basic training on the 1st of April. So with the two weeks with, um, figure two weeks for Exodus and then two weeks for, um, what's the thing right before? Oh, brain fart. I mean, you get leave, right? I mean, yeah, well there's no, no, no. I didn't get any leave after because I had taken it during, I had taken my two weeks for Christmas. Gotcha. During Exodus. Got you. So, so there was like the in-processing before basic training. And then from basically 
a week after the fourth until April first, I was I was in training. Okay. Um, and it was basically at the point where he had said, you know, you guys are going to deploy. There's not, it's not an, if you're, de- you'll deploy, it's when you'll deploy. Um, did that scare you? And then, no, uh, I still, I remember hearing it and I don't remember it. I don't remember it affecting me. Like, I don't know how else to explain it. I think. It's kind of like going on a mission. The first time you leave the wire, I think you're a little bit nervous because you don't really understand or know what to expect. But then, like, the next day, you're not nervous because you know what's coming. And and a little bit, you know that being scared and being nervous is going to get in the way of your training. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of one of those things you just kind of swallow it and put it away. Um, they didn't really let it affect me, but at toward the end of basic, I started toward the end of training. I started having issues with my hips and I wanted to go to sick hall. I wanted to go so bad. I couldn't do anything moving. My legs hurt. Um, and then when I got to my training or to my actual duty station, Um, We were running for PT and the acting first sergeant stopped me and she said, Strzok, what's wrong with you? And I was still running. I was like, nothing, first sergeant, I'm good. You know, and I I mean, these are not exact words, but and basically she stopped me from running. I was I I looked like a monkey trying to screw a football. Um, (laughs) I, I you could tell that I wasn't my gait wasn't right, that I was in pain. I was limping on both sides. She said, what's wrong with you? And I tried to say nothing, nothing, nothing. I didn't want to be that girl that showed up on the first day at a brand new duty station and said, I hurt. I need to go to sick call. Um, I just, I really think that I thought that I needed to be that extra bit of tough and have that extra bit of whatever, because I was a woman instead of a man and I needed to extra prove myself versus whatever. And then I ended up going to sick hall and I had stress fractures in my hips that I had worked the last few weeks of training with and ignored and eventually deployed with. Um, I deployed on a 45 day, no run, jump march. I was on a dead man's profile. I couldn't carry anything over 45 pounds. Um, did that bother you? No, it didn't. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't listen to it. No. (laughs) (laughs) I, I mean, like when I got to, when I got to my actual unit, I clearly like, I didn't, um, I didn't leave the wire until my profile ran out. Um, but I carried all my bags to the airport and the guys offered to help me, but I only had to tell them once and they were like, okay, cool. Um, the guys didn't baby me. They didn't treat me as less than or anything, but they treated me like another soldier. Right. They didn't treat me any differently because I didn't present myself as this fragile flower that was broken. And Oh, my femininity means that I can't, 
function or do this because I have a V instead of a P. Like, I'm sure had I said, you know, hey, I'm struggling, this hurts me, can you carry this? It wouldn't have affected anybody's outlook on my, on, on who I was as a person or a soldier. But I wasn't willing to, as a brand new soldier who had just graduated basic training in AIT 42 days prior and was catching up with a brand new unit that I had never met eight weeks into their deployment in a war zone, I wasn't willing to show up with other people carrying my gear. Sure, that makes sense. Did you see that sort of stuff from other females? Did, did it bother you if you did? Um, you know, at the time, I really didn't notice it. Um, looking back, I could probably call a couple a couple of people out. Um, specifically, one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and look, Marissa, the only reason I ask it, and again, it's. The female perspective is is different, and I don't say that in a pejorative, obviously. I just want our audience to, you know, to understand some of the other challenges you had to go through. And and, and I have this discussion with, with all the women who come on for the most part because I'm yeah. just curious uh, of how they view things. And the one thing I've learned um, over the course of, you know, my nearly 20 years in the military and, and talking to females, it's strange how – Females in the military are most hard on other females. It's not the men who are hard on oh, yeah. the women. It's the women who are harder on the women. Mm-hmm. So, what? Well, and I was only in for, I was literally in the military for a year and 20 days before I got hurt. Mm-hmm. So, my perception and my reality of being in the military is probably not a very accurate long term. Sure. <laughs> Reality, um, what I can say for myself is that um, my unit had four platoons in it. The the actual element that I was involved in and met um, had three. The fourth platoon had gone up to battalion to be their, I guess, their escort. I'm not really sure. I never... It wasn't germane to what I was doing, so I didn't ask too many questions. I I knew my position, and I was a peon, and <laughs> nobody owed me anything. Um, so when I got there, we had three platoons of probably between 30 and 35 people. Each platoon had between three and five females in it. I think total um, our entire company had maybe 12 females, including a uh, female XO or a female platoon leader. So the platoon that I was in when I got hurt had our female platoon leader and she was amazing. Uh, Most of the women, like all of our women were super supportive. Clearly like we're women, there's going to be a little bit of kindness involved, but it wasn't like overall as a whole, our unit was pretty good to each other. Um, Mm -hmm. I had more issues with med as far as there were a couple of people in my unit who were E fives that, um, I have always been a thick girl. I was six, one in high school and 210 pounds. Wow. But, but 
I was also, by the time I left Iraq, I was between 180 and 185, and I was leg lifting 300 pound sets. Wow. So between 12 and 15 reps, three times sets. I have no idea what my one rep maps max was, but I'm assuming it was a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, I had a little bit of chub on my stomach and I was a thicker girl, but I was in no way, shape or form fat, but I was fat shamed for the first probably two and a half months that I was in Iraq by like one person. Wow. I'm sorry to hear it. I mean, that's just, I, I, I wish your leadership was better. Um, I wish that kind of stuff didn't happen. And coming from an NCO, that's just un, yeah. unacceptable. So, um, you know, obviously my words are, are futile at this point, but, you know, we, we've touched on this topic on the podcast before. So uh, it, it bears yes. repeating that it's just, it's, it's unacceptable behavior, especially from people in leadership positions. All right. You know, go ahead. 99.9% of my leadership while I was in the military was amazing beyond words. So to have one person in my entire career that was a shitbag, um, and I don't even think necessarily, nope, there was two people. And I don't even think that it was them consciously trying to be a piece of crap. In fact, after I was hurt and came home, um, one of the people who made my life miserable for the first couple months that I was deployed came up to me and shook my hand, apologized to me and um, told me that he had an enormous amount of respect for me and what I was doing and how I was able to recover. How'd that um, make you feel? I'm not really sure. It made me look at him a lot differently and, um, in a good way or a bad way in a, in a, in a good way. Okay. Um, there were some things that came out about him later on that I found out that make me look at him again a little bit differently and kind of understand where he was coming from and helps me make it a lot less personal what he was doing and saying than than I had originally taken it at the time. Sure. Okay. So let's uh let let's get back to, you know, forty two days after training, you are deploying. Um where are you going? What are you doing? What are you told? And give me the surroundings and, and the kind of date time frame. So I actually got told either right before or right after we had a female in our unit that was killed on April 18th in 2005. And I was told either right before she passed or right after she passed that I would be deploying on the 15th of May. And we were about roughly the same age and it kind of had a little close to home. So I think when I first deployed, I was scared. I was probably more than scared. I was terrified. Um, and they told me that I was going to Baghdad. And so the conversation with my mom right before Mother's Day was a barrel of monkeys. That was so much fun. <laughs> Picking up on your sarcasm. <laughs> oh, God. Good. Good. I always worry that people aren't going to. And then, yeah. Um, so I got to, I actually got to go home for four days for Mother's Day. Um, 
What was the fear about? What, what, was, what were you most afraid of? What were you terrified of? Not coming home? Fair enough. I mean, it seems it's a fair, you know, obviously death is, is it, but you know, there's specific things about it, um, whether it's family, loved ones, you know, um, how it's going to happen kind of deal. I always get choked up talking about my mom and my brother's reaction to me getting hurt. Um, so I think that more than anything, my fear was letting people down um, and that's how I got through basic and that's how I got through my training and then letting people down with my deployment would be, you know, getting someone hurt or not doing things the correct way. And then with my mom would be, you know, not letting her down, but, you know, not coming home and, and having her live with that for the rest of her life because it was my decision to join. So it would be in my twisted head. It would be my fault if, you know, she had not twisted, but you know, no, well, I can understand that. I mean, I'm, I'm similar in the same way. You know, I've had over the years, uh, people question, you know, your military service and your deployments and this, that, and the other and everything else. And the only thing that really gets me angry, I'm like you is that, when it comes to that, uh, I, I feel it's crossing a line because you weren't sitting up with my mother every night worrying about the phone ringing or somebody knocking on the door. You know, you yeah. weren't sitting there with my brother, you know, making sure that his little brother was going to come home. Like, you don't get to sit there and talk about that in any negative way yeah. because those people went through hell while I was gone. Forget what I went through. That's easy. You know, that's easy for me to deal with. It's it's those people on the other end back home. That, 100%. Yeah. I mean, they went through a, a hell that I'll never understand and don't want to, you know, but uh, I know yeah, it was, was I, their hell. I get very frustrated with people because they make fun of people who are dependents. And, you know, there are some dependents who probably take it a little extra ways and try and wear their husband's rank or whatever. But coming from somebody who I deployed, I deployed, I got hurt, I came home, I spent a year and a half in the hospital, I came home from the hospital, I'm alive, I'm still living my life, I walk, I do things, I do whatever I want every day, and then I found out shortly after I came home and got my own apartment that um, my unit was deploying again, and so I went from a deployed soldier to a family member and not even a family member because I didn't have access to anything. I had access to the information through other family members of people that were deployed or my friends who were deployed. Mm. Uh, And all I could do was sit at home and wait for emails and phone calls and Facebook messages. And to be a hundred percent honest, If given the opportunity to sit at home at a computer, staring at it, waiting for a phone call versus going outside the wire every day, strapped with a a nine mil and an M4 and a 50 cal, I'm taking Betsy the 50 cal any day of the week. (laughs) Please and thank you. (laughs) Perfect answer. Well, you've mentioned it a lot. um, You know, the fact that you were injured. Let's let's go to Thanksgiving Day 2005. And 
you know, I, I told you before we started here that ironically or coincidentally, I was in Iraq the same time you were. However, yeah. that was when I chose to take leave. So I, I was home for Thanksgiving in 2005, but you were you were in Iraq. Kind of tell me, you know, what happens that day when you wake up? Is it a normal morning? Do you know what you're doing? To be 100 percent honest, and I'm I'm not sure how your missions work when you were there. Um, my missions were basically the same every day. Yes, they were in a different order. Yes, we took different routes. Yes, we did things so that, you know, if we had five missions or five five objectives that we needed to take care of as a as a as a squad, we might do three on Monday and two on Tuesday and four on Wednesday and we never did the same thing exactly in the same day but everything is gray and everything is tan and everything is brown. And, and after, you know, six months of doing the same crap over and over again, it all kind of bleeds into each other. Sure. So what I thought had happened on Thanksgiving, um, I thought that we had gotten up and gone and gotten Thanksgiving dinner as a squad and then gone and gone to mission and I thought we had like a later mission and apparently I'm remembering it wrong. I'm remembering like a different holiday where we went as like a family unit and gone and gotten dinner together. Um, we, I guess we weren't supposed to go on mission that day. I'm not really sure what happened or why. Um, and at the last minute we ended up going out. And we were at our last stop for the day, and we were in um, Yusufia at the Iraqi Army Reserve compound. It was like the I Iraqi Army and the Iraqi police were both stationed there together. Yep, I've been there. I know exactly um, where it is. I have a funny story about this place. So there's, there's that – it's like one – what I remember is there's like that one kind of warehouse type building mm -hmm. and then there's a huge parking lot out in front of it. Right. Yeah, the big parking okay. lot. Yeah. So we're sitting in the trucks on the little, on the fob. We're all hanging out in the trucks. There's two of them next to each other, smoking and joking, talking crap to each other. I think it's it's all of us and our, our squad leader and our team leaders were all inside. We weren't needed for anything. And the IA was up doing, you know, the checkpoints or whatnot. So we didn't have anything to do. So I remember vividly I had my Kevlar off and my flak jacket was like over the top of the armor around the turret because I was the gunner at the time. Um and we're sitting there and after a while hearing like mortars get lobbed in, you can kind of tell if it's close enough to have to worry about it. Mm -hmm. And so the first one came in, we didn't even see it. We heard it, but we couldn't see anything that it had done. And so another one came in and you could see the little cloud of dust that landed on the other side of the wall. But it was far enough. It was more than a football field away. We were like, oh, there's no way. You know, three to five. They're never going to walk that in far enough for us. The third one came in. It got a little closer. And we all kind of looked at each other like, maybe we should get our shit and get inside. <laughs> <laughs> and 
And just before the fourth one came over, my squad leader came out, had the wildest, most crazy, what the fuck are you doing eyes I've ever seen in my life. And he came out and he was just screaming. He's like, what are you crazy assholes doing? (laughs) So we all like, I'm sitting in the driver's seat with my foot holding the door open. My cigarette was like hanging out of the Humvee. I dropped the cigarette and was like trying to climb up into the turret. I grabbed my gear. We're running into the building with like my flak jacket on upside down. And it was a hot mess. We were all a hot mess, but that was the last, you know, mortar. So we were all safe, but it was kind of funny. We're stupid. A little (laughs) bit of both, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So at least there's a good memory from certain things, you know, there's a ton of good memories, but that was just the one that I can think of. Um, so where were you? Do, you? do you remember the exact details of everything before you got hit? So we were at Yusufia, and um, do you know who Noah Galloway is? I do, yes. He was a guest on the House okay. Ground podcast. He was one of, our, okay. one of our first guests. Oh, cool. So actually, his unit was in the area that we were in, and they had gotten a call to do um, a check or an investigate a mass casualty or a mass grave of Iraqi casualties on a national holiday. Um, that doesn't smell like a trap to me or anything. No, not at all. And so they said they didn't have the manpower to do it or they didn't have the equipment to do it. And so they passed it on to us and we had trucks. And so we went and we were traveling around along um, canal road in the area on what I'm told was a black road. So we should never have been on it in the first place. Um, And as we were driving down the road, we had uh, four 155s go off that were buried, like stacked on top of each other and buried. And it detonated from what I'm told, like where the center console meets the dashboard on like a regular SUV, but a little bit more under the passenger side than directly in the center. All right. So do you see the explosion or no, or you don't remember it? No firsthand knowledge of anything other than I occasionally can recall um, yelling yelling or screaming. I'm not really sure how I would characterize it. Maybe a little bit of both. And um, the smell of burning flesh isn't something that I ever remember smelling in my life. But even in the state that I was in, it's not something I will ever forget. (laughs) So the explosion goes off. Do you know what happens to you? I mean, you're thrown from the vehicle, correct? Yeah. I was in the gun, so I, for some reason, I should have been sitting on the road. That was our, that was our, like, our thing was certain things, certain roads we were supposed to be down for. Right. I was up, whether I had stood up because I saw something or I was standing up because I was standing up. But if I wasn't standing up, I probably... I either wouldn't be here or I would be a double above the amputee. Um, 
Noah's Noah's unit actually he got hurt, and about a month after he got hurt, his LT called him and said, "Hey, that MP unit from Thanksgiving, there was a survivor and she's at the hospital." So I I actually got pictures of the blast from him. Oh really? Um, yeah. So what There's was it like seeing those? They're still really hard to look at. Um, there's not much left of my truck. The the turret, um, like this, the roof of the vehicle is whole, but there's like a front half of my vehicle, and then a back part of the vehicle, and like the whole middle section where I should be standing, just kind of doesn't exist. So you're in the you're in the turret. You have a driver, a TC. Anybody else in the vehicle? Uh, the driver, the team team leader, and uh, crap, the Iraqi police colonel, and our interpreter. Okay, and they were, the two of them were in the back seats, obviously. Yes. Okay. Do you know? So- do you know once you you get thrown from the vehicle and you land, are, are you awake? Do you know what's going on? I was awake, but not really with it. I'm told that when they, because they couldn't find me at first. So I, myself and my team leader had, I guess, like landed in some brush. And so I came out of the turret. I was the lead vehicle. So I was facing forward. I came out of the vehicle and like flipped over in the air and on my face slid into bushes. And I'm not sure who actually found me, but um, actually, I know who found me. Sorry. He noticed my the bottom of my DCU top had flipped up over my Kevlar. And from the blast and everything and the dust in the air, everything was all like some shade of tan or another. And so he saw the tattoo on my lower back. Um, my tramp stamp, my gift from my mother for my 18th birthday. <laughs> um, we we went and got matching tattoos for my birthday three weeks go. before I turned 18. Um, so she went and lied to the tattoo artist for me so I could get a tattoo. Um, and that's what he saw. And he saw it moving and came closer to it. And as he got closer, he could hear me and... So that's when he realized that that's where I was and they got me and kind of got me set up and, you know, put a tourniquet on everything because everything was bleeding. And I guess they said that I was awake and I was talking to them. I was responding. Um, And they said that, you know, when they asked if I wanted a water, if they could get me anything, I said, I don't need a water, but I'll take a beer. So I was like, making jokes and whatnot, but I don't, I don't think I had any idea what was happening. Right. So do you, the last thing you remember, what was it? Uh, I really don't know. Um, Do you know the condition of any of your other platoon mates at this point in time? No, I had no idea. I didn't actually, I think I suspected, um, but I, they medically induced my coma in Baghdad. 
because of my head injury. Um, my brain was falling into my skull. I was missing half my foot. My whole right leg was jacked. I was bleeding internally. I had lacerated my liver. Um, my, my lungs were so bruised that I was having trouble breathing. Um, and I broke, I literally broke every part of my body. You can't point to something and not be within inches of something that I broke. Do you know, <laughs> do you know that your leg is in bad shape at this point? I had no idea. Okay. I didn't actually figure out anything until, um, so they induced my coma in Baghdad. They took me out of it in Germany, but I didn't wake up. I spent three weeks and six days in a coma um, uninduced. And then when I woke up, there was still, I was still so medicated and so confused and didn't really understand what was going on. And, um, I wanted to go to the bathroom and I didn't understand what a catheter was or why I would have one. I just wanted to get up and go to the bathroom. And at the time I didn't have a left foot and, um, I was taken through the middle of my left, my left shin and my right leg was so badly damaged that I was in um, a fixator and my ankle was completely shattered and my heel was completely shattered. And so there was definitely no, there was definitely no walking to the bathroom. Yeah. I, I mean, when do you grasp the magnitude of your injuries? This, I was trying to go to the bathroom and couldn't, couldn't get grasp the not going to the bathroom that I was good. And I, with my non-speaking trach and my right arm and a cast from fingertip to shoulder, tried to get up out of bed like three or four times because I wasn't here in the hole, just go to the bathroom, you're good. And my mom got up and put me back in bed a couple of times. And the third time she did it, because I like that little trapeze thing that they put over the top of your bed to help you like resituate yourself in mm -hmm. the hospital bed. Right. I finally got sick of her not letting me do it. And so I reached up and I grabbed the trapeze and like swung my legs to get up out of bed. And when my mom got up to put me back in bed, I mean, I probably wasn't very successful in getting my 50 pound metal leg over, <laughs> mm -hmm. but, um, when she got back up to put me back in bed, I think at that point, that's when she told me um, that I felt the bottom of my leg and I just looked at her and I managed to get out. It's all my fault. Why did you say that? I don't know. <laughs> I still have no idea. I don't remember what happened. I don't remember how it happened. Um, but I think survivor's guilt is something we all deal with when people get hurt. So, cause I've had, I've had multiple conversations. I've had yearly conversations with Noah. I've had multiple conversations with people in my unit. Um, there's no way that anything that happened could have been avoided. It was, it was what it was. Wrong place, wrong thing. time. Yeah. Uh, the, the only way it could have been avoided is if the person that sent us there used their common sense and decided that it was a trap that sure. we were walking into. Yeah. Um, what's your mom's reaction when you wake up 
I mean, what is she saying? Um, is she well, is she crying or is she? You know, I mean, because you had been in a coma as you said for three weeks, so I mean, she, yeah. is she relieved that you're up or is she emotional? I was on so many meds. I don't. I thought I was in upstate New York. I was in Washington D.C. Um, I had no idea what was happening. Um, I came out of my coma. Um, I was in the ICU. And it was about 11 days before Christmas. Um, she was leaving for the night and I managed to get out a couple words. I think I told her I loved her. She was leaving. And that's how she knew that I was coming out of my coma. Um, two weeks after I got to D.C., they told my mom point blank that because of my traumatic brain injury, that my best bet for the rest of my life. Like I was never going to walk or talk again that my most optimistic, um, for my recovery was, was that I would be a vegetable. Like if I woke up, I would never walk or talk again, that I was probably going to be a vegetable for the rest of my life. If I woke up. Wow. And she told the doctors to go fuck themselves because <laughs> they didn't <laughs> know who I was or you know how stubborn I am and two weeks later there I was waking up and about a year and a half later I walked up to the doctor I was getting ready to leave in the next two days I was in my PT uniform as a E4 nobody and I was like well screw it how much trouble can I get into? Like, it's not like they can cut my legs off or anything. So <laughs> I walked up, I saw the the Colonel that had told my mom what he had said. And I just felt that it was not, um, maybe his delivery wasn't, I don't know at the time what I was thinking. I think I was just pissed that he would say something like that instead of, you know, like, you're supposed to be giving her hope, but instead you're telling, you're telling a woman, you know, two weeks before Christmas that, you know, her kid's never gonna whatever. And so I kind of walked over to him. He was talking to somebody and I waited for a lull in the conversation. And I, at the time, you know, he looked over, acknowledged me and I said, how are you, sir? And I put my hand out, shake his hand, made sure I had a real, you know, firm grip, let him know that I didn't, I meant business. And he was very confused when, cause I, I walked up to him, like I'd known him for years and um, he was very confused. And I said, I'm the vegetable. And he kind of <laughs> just had this look wash over him. And I was like, have a good day. And I turned around and I walked away from him and I've never seen him again. <laughs> that's all kinds of awesome right there, Marissa. Yeah. I mean, that that's, did you was your mother there when you did it or no? Yeah, she was. How yeah. pr like how proud of you was she? We walked into PT and she's the one who noticed him because I had no idea who the guy was. Um, and she's like, "That's the man that told me that you were never going to wake up." And I said, "Hang on a second. <laughs> <laughs> that's very well done. I love it. I really that's 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 fantastic. I appreciate it. Okay, so so take me through kind of." how you get to where you are now. I mean, obviously you've had to have more surgeries, correct? Oh God. Um, I don't remember how many surgeries I had, but for a while 
I was having two surgeries a week. We were trying to save my right leg. Um, and then it got to a point where they were washing out the infection and they washed out part of the bone graft. And when I talked to my surgeon, I was like, well, you know, what would you do if this was you or if I was your daughter? What would you tell her to do? And he very honest with me, very blunt, and I very much appreciate it. Um, this is a Tuesday evening, and he said, to be all, in all honesty, I would probably, I would tell her to amputate it. There's every chance that we will try and save your leg for two years, and there's every chance that in the end we will be unsuccessful and have to amputate it anyway because the bone graft was so large and my ankle was shattered. I'm sorry, my ankle was broken in a way that it would have been fused and my heel was shattered. Um, he said I would always be high risk for fracture because of the, the size of the bone graft and then my ankle would be fused. So I would never get to wear like pretty girly shoes ever again. Right. And at that point I was just like, right, well, I know I'm scheduled for surgery on Thursday. He said, well, you know, if we're going to do the amputation, we'll move it to Friday. I said, well, is there any way to just do it tomorrow? Cause like, I don't want to, I don't want to make the decision and then get scared and back out. And what did he say? He said, no, absolutely not. <laughs> Um, he wanted me to talk to people and get their, their thoughts on what I should do and, and what I should do with the, the knowledge that I had and my injury and whatnot. And so Thursday he came back and he said, what are we doing? And I said, well, I'll see you tomorrow. Um, I had my last pedicure and we're going to cut these pretty little toes off. <laughs> and I, I had, I had finger toes. They weren't pretty at all. Um, so I really wasn't too sad to see them go. Plus my feet were a size 11 and I mean, now I have a size nine and you should see my shoe closet. <laughs> That's awesome. It makes me smile. Like honestly, I pause cause I just smile. Um, you know, your outlook on it is, is amazing. I mean, you know, there, there's a lot of different ways you can go with this, this sort of trauma and you seem to take it all in stride, I think, which is very healthy. Um, yeah. you know, uh, when do you learn about, uh, your fallen comrades and what was that like? Um, so I learned about my legs and my injuries about a month after, maybe a little bit more after I came out of my coma. Um, I'm not really a hundred percent sure when I learned they had passed. Um, but and they were killed instantly in the blast, correct? So... My my team leader was killed instantly. I'm told it was a saw the saw the flash, didn't hear the boom kind of thing. Um, so I'm I'm thankful for that. Um, my driver wasn't quite as lucky, but I'm hoping that um, he was in shock and didn't really know what was happening. Right. I mean, how do you deal with that every day? I 
I don't really know. <laughs> um, I figured out that they that they had passed um, not too long after. I think once the haze of my body got used to being on all of the medications and the pain medication and the this and the that and the things that were happening to me, um, my brain started asking questions, wondering, you know, how come I haven't heard from anybody? You know, I wasn't the only one in the truck. Where is everybody else? And so I asked my mom what happened and where they were and why I had heard from them. And um, she kind of looked at me and told me that that wasn't a conversation that she was ready to have. Like it, it wasn't a conversation for her. It was a conversation for my um, battalion commander. When do you get and to have so that conversation? She called him on the phone right then. She did. Okay. Was he back stateside or was he overseas at that point still? I want to say they were back stateside. So I got hurt in November. My unit came home in February, but I'm pretty sure my battalion commander and like the battalion portion of our unit came back prior because they had deployed sooner than, but I'm not, again, I'm not a hundred percent sure. So I'm pretty sure it was either, it was before the middle of February because I still had my leg. Gotcha. Okay. Um, All right. So, you know, you end up leaving the hospital, right? You walk out and you're starting your life over again. Um, do you know what you're going to do next? Do you know what the kind of the next steps are? Or is it just about healing and getting better? I had no idea what I was going to do. I was a 21 year old kid that they'd handed a fat wad of money to and said, okay, see you later. Um, I was pissed, but I wasn't going to admit that I was pissed and I was dealing with things, but I wasn't going to admit that I was dealing with things because I wasn't ready to. Um, and they kept trying to get me to go in and talk to psychiatrists and do this, that, and the other thing. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to, I didn't want to. And in the end it worked out for me because the guy that was the head of neuropsych when I was at the hospital, was the crazy dude that shot up um, Fort Hood? Yeah. You're kidding me. I swear to God. Wow. At least that's what, I don't know, that's what my mom said. I've looked it up a couple of times. I know he was there. My mom said that he was in my room a couple of times and she didn't like him. Um, but I I don't I don't know. I don't have any firsthand recollection or knowledge of him. Um but I just, I don't know, I wasn't ready to talk to anybody. And talking to people before you're ready for stuff isn't, like... Productive? Yeah. Like, you're not going to force things out of me that I'm not ready to have force out of me. Sure. All you're going to do is make me bitter and angry, and I'll handle it when I'm ready to. So how do you get to the point so, where you are ready? I think I had been... I was home. It was it was still nice out. I got my new apartment in August. It's probably September ish, and I went to the VA, and I finally had gotten told 
one too many times that I was real short or that I was edgy or I seemed more angry or whatever. I think one too many times. And I finally looked at my caseworker and I said, Hey, is there someone I can talk to? And she's like, yeah, there's the vet center. And so she emailed the vet center and it was really funny because there was a guy that I dated whose first sergeant, um, I had been like bowling and stuff with his unit. So I had made friends with these people and the guy who was available to talk to me responded and he said, I think I know who you're talking about and I might have to, you know, pass on this because it's not, I don't know if it was like a conflict of interest yeah, or sure. he thought it would be uncomfortable or, and it ended up being the best thing that could have happened to me because I was already comfortable with him and I unloaded more shit on this man in like three months of talking than I've ever unloaded on anyone else in the entire 33 years of me being on this earth. I swear to God. Um, Well, that's listen. I I mean, I just, you know, your courage is impressive there. There's no doubt about it. It takes, it takes a lot to get to that point and we've discussed it a lot on the, on the podcast. So I always like to, you know, acknowledge people and let them know that, you know, the courage it took to come to that decision is a lot uh, tougher than people think. And there's a lot of other options out there other than choosing that road. And unfortunately, a lot of people do choose them and it leads to a lot of bad things. And even Noah Galloway told the same story. He chose a lot of wrong things before he chose the right thing. And so, you know, from that standpoint, when you get there, it's certainly worth acknowledging. So congratulations on that. Um, Go ahead. I am definitely not at that point on a daily basis. I have my bad days. I have my good days. Things have not been good for me in the last few years. I'm pulling my head out of my ass, so to speak. Um, but the way I looked at it, when I got told that my, my unit had passed was, you know, the goal of the person who set the bomb up was to kill everybody in the vehicle. And, and they didn't. And, and for me to roll over and die or hurt myself or not live every day would be like me spitting in their family's face and taking a piss on their grave. And I don't have it in me to be that much of a disrespectful piece of crap. Um, it's amazing so I just, feel, I just feel like it would be disrespecting their memory. And so their names are tattooed on my back with a giant tattoo. And every time somebody asks me about it, regardless of how drunk or inappropriately they touch me or talk to me about it, I will respectfully talk to them and explain to them what happened. And I will gladly share stories about both of them anytime anybody ever asks. Marissa, I think you've done an amazing job at um, compartmentalizing all this and keeping it in a place where, you can deal with it and the way you pay your respects to your fallen comrades is, is honorable. And I mean, powerful words. Uh, and I think you have a, a wonderful outlook on it. Um, you know, I would, I would tell you that, uh, just in the experience of doing this podcast a lot, there's everybody handles these things in their own way. And if that's what, you know, works for you, continue to do that because, um, it's the only way you can keep yourself going and, and whatever 
that is, then that works. And so, um, yeah, I'm just, I know it's not silly, but like, I'm proud of you. You know, I'm proud that you can get to that point, you know, and, and we don't say that enough to each other, you know, cause oh. to get to that point is tough and, and it's hard yeah. work and, and you've had to go through hell and back, not only once physically, but then twice again, mentally. And so recognizing that I think is important. So, um, again, from that standpoint, I'm, I'm proud of you. Thank you. So tell me about Miss Veteran America. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> I can't even. It's so much fun. Um, God, I've never been that nervous. I can't remember ever being that nervous. So 2012, like I said, Sue Downs was asked to judge something. And she was an amputee who got hurt right before I left the hospital to come home. Um, and she called me and said, hey, girl, this is going on. I want you to come up and check it out. And October, for whatever reason, for me, is always like a super busy year or month. And I think that month, I literally had an event like the last weekend in September, the first two weekends in October, and like the third or final weekend in October happened to fall on the one weekend that I didn't have anything going on, but I was just so exhausted that I was like, I I physically cannot, or it happened where it was falling on a weekend and it was one day and I was here some other day and I could have traveled, done it, but it just wasn't, it was too much. So I ended up not doing it. And she talked me into competing the next year and at the very, very last minute, I wasn't paying attention to what I was doing in my email address. I have two email accounts. I have my professional email that I send to people that I am trying to have some form of a professional reputation with or like whatever with. Um, and then I have my other email that I set up with my friends that I, you know, send junk mail, send subscriptions and stuff to. And I sent the email that I was interested in joining. And as I hit send, I was like, oh, my God, no. (laughs) Because I went back and I checked and I didn't sign up with Marissa Dotstrock. I signed up with Sexy Stumps 13. It's an awesome screen name. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that was that was my first um, introduction, I guess, to the women running this organization. So fast forward to regionals, I drive up and I get to regionals and they're held at the Women's Memorial in, or at the time they were held at the Women's Memorial in, um, in Arlington. So there's the East Coast regionals and the West Coast regionals, and then they have the finals and then they have the next day is the actual event. Um, and so I got there, I was all excited. I was waiting to see jazz booth. She's the woman who started this all. And then I was excited to see Sue that I hadn't seen in years. And I got there and jazz walked up to me and she was like, how you doing sexy stumps? And she gave me a hug and she was picking on me, you know, she's like 13. Was there really like one through 12 was already taken? Like, um, and so we were talking about it. And I said, you know, where's Sue? And she was like, yeah, no, she's not going to be here. <laughs> and, uh, I was already there. So I figured, you know, what the hell? And I competed and 
I met an incredible group of women who I'm still friends with and uh, made the top 25. And so back up to Virginia, I went in October and um, in the process of doing this there, they judge you on advocacy on um, your talent and then, Oh God, something else. And I totally forgot. I'm having a stroke. It's happening. <laughs> Don't hurt yourself. It's okay. We get the point. Oh God. So they judge you on three different things and talent and advocacy for the organization are two of the three things. And it is in no way, shape or form a beauty contest. It is not judged on. There's literally nothing that you do physically that's judged. Um, like the best dressed gets an award, but that's not something that, is factored into who wins. Right. Um, so the talent competition or the talent portion, I was like, well, I don't know what I can do. Like, I'm really not good at anything. And so I was talking to my friend and <laughs> I don't know if you can use this in your show. And I don't really know if this is a thing that I really want everybody to know but i was like i'm only really good at two things and it's a family show so i'm pretty sure they're not gonna let me shoot guns on stage <laughs> oh my god talking, yeah so and i was talking to one of my military friends who had deployed with special forces so he was all about like raunchy funny and he was kind of a comedian and he was like oh my god marissa that's your talent and i said no 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 stay with me family show on stage not acceptable and he laughed and he's like no 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 no. like you're you're funny you're you're an asshole and you're funny like that's your talent um so i got up on stage and told five minutes of jokes about me being an amputee and my last joke was you know i don't understand why men or why people are so surprised when they see my closet and see that I have a hundred pairs of shoes. Like they amputated my feet, not my vagina. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense when you put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and just like just now it, it took everyone in the audience that second of like registering what I had just said. Right. And that one second of silence was the most terrifying second <laughs> of my entire life. That is because great. I just said vagina on stage in front of 200 people. And then all of a sudden they erupted and I walked off stage to a standing ovation. That's great. So, yeah. That's um, awesome. It makes me smile. Yeah. (laughs) Marissa, your story makes me smile. Like, you know, (laughs) I I just, and maybe it's just your personality about the whole thing, but I, you know, uh, it's great that you can take as much of this in stride as possible, but it's also great that you seem to have a really good outlook on what's next. I mean, there's, we've said it before, there's a lot of different ways this can go, but you continue to remind yourself about choosing the way you want it to go as opposed to letting it choose you. Yeah. Um, I'm trying, I don't, this is not 
this is not an everyday. Like, this is not my outlook every day. Like, sure. Uh, there are more days than not that I'm like, okay. Like some days it's no pants day. Cause I don't feel like putting on pants and it's more comfortable to wear, you know, booty shorts and hang out in the house and clean and do nothing. And then there's other days where I'm like, I'm not getting out of bed. So what would I put pants on for? Right. Right. <laughs> um, but yeah. Well, look, I mean, again, what you've gone through, uh, I think you're a courageous individual. Um, you know, I, I commend you for uh, your dedication to uh, yourself and, and making sure you get better. And also, you know, your dedication to remember those you lost and um, yeah. just continuing to, to live your life as best you can each day and not letting one day that's bad fold into another day that's bad. And And from that standpoint... I think you've taught us all a valuable lesson and uh, you know, I just, I wish you nothing but the best going forward and continue to keep everybody laughing. Oh, thank you very much. Marissa Strock. Thank you for being part of the hazard round. Oh, thank you for having me. You've been listening to the hazard ground podcast hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Sports have a way of bringing us all together. And at Sleeper, we developed a fantasy platform designed to make leagues more fun and personal. Sleeper includes an integrated chat and every feature you could want for your NFL, NBA, and even eSport leagues. Plus, it's completely free with no ads. See why millions have made Sleeper the fastest-growing fantasy platform. Download Sleeper on the App Store or Google Play today. Headlines and hot takes, they have their place. But at our podcast, ESPN Daily. We don't just skim the surface of sports. Dude, I mean, this clearly transcends blood feuds, <laughs> rivalries, sports. This is something far, far deeper than that. I'm your host, Pablo Torre, and every day we try to dive into the stories behind the athletes. The picture of him in the dugout afterwards just looked like a guy who'd had his heart ripped out. Listen to ESPN Daily wherever you get your podcasts.